Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most high profile, the most gruesome, the most heinous homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are profiled, and they are examined. For this season, season five, the focus is on sick twisted pedophile rapist or basically any type of sex related type of homicide all of these types of homicides that occurred in Maryland they are profiled for this season and as I stated in the last episode the state of Maryland even though it's small I mean it has so many of these types of homicides that are gruesome and that are like noteworthy that this is just part one of these type of homicides part two that will be featured later so with all that being said let's just get right on into it on this episode of Maryland's most notorious murders the heinous murder of 15 year old Jason Madison jr. is profiled and the unsolved shooting murder of 26 year old Rashida Muhammad is examined Now, some people, you know, I I hate to say it, and I hate to even think like this, but they are just meant for prison. Like, they are just determined to be a complete fuck-up. They are just determined to not do shit with their life, just to be a complete bum. And they they content with it. They, They cool with it. They don't have no problem with it. It, it, it ain't, they, they can't deal with society, they can't deal with real life, and it ain't blamed on, it's not because of no mental illness, it's not because they had a rough childhood, it ain't because, you know, they was raised wrong or nothing like that, it ain't because their daddy ain't do this or their mommy ain't do that. Some people, it, it's just, they are literally just determined, they go out of their way to be a fuck up. No matter who tries to help them, no matter who tries to get them advice, no matter how many times they get help from somebody, they are just doomed to be a failure, a loser, no matter what. And they, they, people like this, they can't be saved. They, they cannot be rehabilitated because to be blunt, there's just, it's like no hope for them. There's no hope for them. They are just a sick waste of flesh. That's what I call it. I mean, the worst of the worst. And yeah, I I truly do believe that you can be born a complete fuck up. (sighs) Anyway, 35-year-old Dante Parrish had managed to rack up a few charges in his criminal career. Beginning in 1992, Dante started getting locked up for charges like theft and possession of drugs and really petty stuff like making a false statement to like the police in 1993 and malicious destruction of property in 1997. But in 1998, Dante was heading down the wrong path and he was arrested and convicted of murder for shooting a man in East Baltimore. Dante was sentenced to 30 years in prison. He swore he was innocent the entire time and he appealed his conviction. Nothing happened, 
until the Innocence Project got involved. And once the Innocence Project decided to take a second look at Dante's case, they did determine that his case was tainted because a witness had identified in court, basically identified and testified in court that Dante had owned a gun. And it was later proven that this was a gun that Dante had never even seen before. So Dante's attorney also they never presented any evidence or called any witnesses on Dante's behalf, which, you know, kind of made his defense look a little shabby or whatever because of these inconsistencies and like legal mistakes and little stuff like that. After Dante served 10 years of his 30 year sentence, he eventually just pled guilty to an Alfred plea, which basically is admitting that the you know the prosecution they got enough evidence to convict him of the murder but without Dante basically admitting admitting to any guilt and still maintaining your innocence at the same time which is the stupidest I ever seen but either way the state of Maryland got something that just called an alpha plea where you can do that you can just you can be like oh you got all this evidence against me but I'm not really pleading guilty so Dante eventually got credited for time served. And after he served those 10 years, he was released from prison. And which he only served like a third of his sentence, which was the 30 years. Now, after Dante got out of prison, you would think that you skated. Like you live your life right. I mean, you got a chance. You've been in that locked up for 10 years. You Because even before then, you, you going this way and you doing all of that. But when you come home, I mean, I don't understand. Like, you've been locked up. You, this is what you wanted, right? So after Dante gets out of prison, he had nowhere to live, nowhere to go, no job, no prospects, nothing to do. So he hooked up with a woman who he called his childhood friend, even though he hadn't seen this childhood friend in over 20 years. The row home in the 2400 block of Llewellyn Avenue was a place where basically it just seemed like according to articles in the Baltimore Sun anybody could crash there and Dante knew that he would be allowed to shack up there no questions asked nobody who lived there even knew or even asked about where he'd been at whether or not he had a record or why he'd been missing in action for over 20 years nobody even asked nothing I mean the house was apparently a house like I said where anybody could just shack up could just go they could just stay um according to articles it was full of alcoholics full of drug addicts who either slept the day away and drank the day away or just stayed high all day 24 7 and a house like this I mean where there no rules no structure no monitoring no anything just a place to rest your head because you don't have nothing else to do you ain't got nowhere else to be you basically ain't got nothing else this is where dante decided to stay you know coming home from prison it's still better than a jail cell but anyway 15 year old jason madison jr he was gay and he was proud of it like he was an, an above an, an above average student or an above average sophomore at Vivian T. Thomas Medical Arts Academy in West Baltimore, 
where at this school, 80% of its 425 students are female. The school is basically like a school that's geared towards kids who are like pursuing careers in the medical field, like doctors, nurses, CNAs, paramedics, and stuff like that. But Jason felt home at this school, and he was one of the most popular students there. He stood out from all the other kids by the way he dressed with his flamboyant, fleshy, flashy clothes that expressed his true character, his true personality. He hated conforming to how society says, you know, people should be and his quirky and energetic and vivacious personality, it just permeated throughout the whole school and he made an impact on everybody that he came in contact with. He loved texting and being on MySpace, which was, you know, popular at this time, but he was also a kid that was focused. Jason had dreams of finishing his education in Maryland and then eventually moving on to medical school where he would had, you know, eventually open up a pediatric clinic. Jason had his own, he had basically, he had his uh, high grades. He worked hard on his grades. He didn't, you know, he didn't have any reason to rush home. You know, like most kids that after school, you know, the teachers noticed that he was different and that he stayed after school. He loved staying after school. He loved talking to his teachers and socializing with the other classmates, you know, other kids who didn't rush home to school. I mean, it, it was basically, it was obvious that Jason felt more welcome at school than he did at his own home. According to articles in the Baltimore Sun, Jason's home life was rough, to say the least. And most of his family basically, apparently didn't approve of either his openly gayness, you know, his characteristics, like they didn't approve of his lifestyle. And because of that, Jason rarely spent time at home. And he lived with his great aunt where there was no judgment. There was no rules. There was no structure. You know, there was no questions asked. At this house, you know, there was basically every man for himself. At this house, everybody was allowed to do their own thing. And at this house, Jason let it be known that he was gay and he kept it no secret. He was basically allowed to be himself. You know, it was at this house where this, you know, proud, openly gay teen, he encountered the 35-year-old newly released inmate. You know, with a 10-year difference, he'd been locked up for this long, for 10 years, and he probably wasn't used to how openly gay, you know, teenage youth can be can dress now. I mean, on a night of November the 10th, 2009, three adults who had all lived in a house had left out to go to a party in Cherry Hill. Two other adults who were in the home, who were like Jason's great aunt and uh, her brother, they were so passed out uh, from heroin that a tornado could have went through the house and they wouldn't have noticed a thing. This was when a monster, also known as Dante Parrish, decided to make his move on the teenager. According to articles in Baltimore Sun and uh, newscasts from Fox 45, a 
13 year old girl who was also in the home heard Jason screaming for help in an upstairs bedroom when the girl went to go wake up Jason's great aunt which took forever Jason's aunt went upstairs to see what was going on in uh, his great aunt's drugged out state she opened the bedroom door and saw Dante and Jason Jason she saw with her own eyes that Jason's pants were down and Jason hissed and yelled at her to get out and shut the door this is in her own house now this woman was so high from heroin reportedly that she just she did just what he said and backed out of the room and passed out again in another room so that lets you know right there like the type of surroundings or the type of conditions that this 15 year old kid was in and stranger you know and she did like nothing nobody obviously thought that this was like strange or nothing out of the ordinary or anything so that should just basically tell you the the conditions i, I can't even i was later more like 3 a.m the next morning when two women who lived in a home came back from their party out cherry hill they found that all the lights had been turned off in the home and that the power had been turned off they discovered also that um jason's great aunt and um and her brother were still passed out from their dope high sitting in a chair in the living room this was and there was just like one candle burning and they found out that the tv was gone they told jason's aunt and his great aunt and a little after 3 a.m jason's great aunt did manage to call the police and reported that somebody had broken into their home and stole the TV from the living room all while she was still inside apparently and she didn't know what was going on um and without her even knowing like what who did what she also told her brother about the lights being out and her brother went into the basement and turned the circuit breaker box back on which for some reason had been turned off and he went back upstairs into the back red bedroom to try to get the light working he found out that that particular light bulb had been loosened so he had to stand on a bed to tighten up the light bulb and in his state of highness he didn't notice nothing weird or strange about the room or that any signs of a fight or a struggle or anything had occurred he wasn't even paying that no mind after tightening up the light bulb he went back to a front bedroom and basically went to sleep when the cops showed up the cop did write a report for the missing TV and left without looking around or searching or checking for anything out of the ordinary either. About two hours later, after the officer left, Jason's uh, great aunt brother woke up to everybody in the house screaming about blood being found in the home and blood everywhere and he jumped up, he traced a blood trail that led all the way back to the back bedroom where he had just fixed the light bulb from. He later told detectives that once daylight hit and he switched the light on, he saw blood on the mattress, which had been turned over. He saw blood on the sheets that had been thrown in a pile on a bloody comforter. In the middle of all that was a bloody box cutter. When Jason's great aunt picked up the block box cutter, 
her brother slapped it out of her hand and knew that it was time to call the police. Again, especially since Jason was nowhere to be found. So at 5.09 a.m., Jason's great aunt called the Baltimore City Police Department to report that this time there was blood all throughout her house and she had seen blood all on the banister leading up to the second floor and to top this off, her nephew was missing. This time when the police showed up, they followed the trail of blood that led to the back bedroom and in a closet they found the battered, bruised, and cut up body of the 15-year-old found hidden under of clothes in the fetal position was his head curled under his feet. Jason had been cut 15 times. Jason had cut marks to and slash marks to his head, neck, and face. Three of the slashes were so deep they fatally cut the artery in his neck in three places. In addition to Jason's throat being cut with a box cutter, he had a pillowcase, a freaking pillowcase, stuffed down his throat. And he had been sexually assaulted. Jason was pronounced dead at the scene. When the family realized that Dante was also missing, it didn't take long for them to put two and two together and figure out that he must have killed the teen, especially when they learned that Dante had just gotten out of prison for murder not even a year earlier. And Jason's great aunt figured out that Dante must have been the one that also stole the TV to try to make it seem like a burglar came in and did it or like they had got robbed or something. And once daylight hit, the police found more blood throughout the house. There was blood on the wall, blood on the door frame, blood on the banister, blood on the front door, blood on the sheets, blood on the pillowcases, blood on the mattress, and blood on the box ring. Dante left his DNA all on the cigarette butts that he left in an ashtray that was found next to Jason's body and in the toilet. I mean, he managed to do all of this after killing this kid and nobody woke up, nobody did anything, everybody passed out. <sighs> Dante, who, who probably, to me it seemed like this, like he wanted to, he wanted to go back to prison. You know, he probably wanted to go back to prison anyway. He was just casually arrested a few days later after he killed Jason at a convenience store on Moravia Road. Held without bail and charged with first degree murder, when the Innocence Project learned about this new arrest, they were quick to, like, quick, quick to say that this arrest ain't had nothing to do with what Dante was charged with now, and that they ain't have anything to do they ain't do nothing wrong by helping him, you know, with his first murder case. They were just like, look, that's two different things. You know, we didn't screw up, you know, just because we helped him get released from the first time. You know, that wasn't us. <sighs> anyway, Jason's murder shocked his school family because nobody really knew just how rough and how bad his home life was. Jason's funeral was held at Unity United Methodist Church on Emerson Avenue. And a number of Jason's teachers attended, and a scholarship fund was also announced and set up in his name. Jason's English teacher commented to the Baltimore Sun, He was always the first to class, the first to the cafeteria, where the other kids fought to be at his table. 
He was always the first one to turn in his homework and get almost perfect grades. He was outspoken and excited about everything, everything that he talked about. And he was the first to share what he did over the weekend and was everybody's best friend. After Dante was arrested, he eventually just to he just confessed to killing the teen, um, the teenager, possibly because the he probably confessed because he the newly released convicted basically the newly released convicted murderer he couldn't handle Jason's flamboyant and openly gay personality, and maybe he just wanted to go the fuck back to prison. Who knows? I mean, Dante confessed then later. He changed his mind and was like the detectives and his own attorney forced him to confess. And then he pled not guilty and decided to take all this mess to trial. Like, really? Just because he got away with it before, he felt like he can just roll the dice and be like, okay, well, it worked before. Let me try this again. Anyway, Jason's teachers again came forward and they testified on Jason's behalf of the type of person he was, how Jason's character was, and the type of student he was. One of his teachers testified saying, I felt like I needed to be a voice for Jason when he was alive. He was so outspoken, he didn't need anyone to speak for him. But after Jason's murder, there was nobody else to do it. You think you know your students, but you only know one side. The way he presented himself was in distinct contrast to his living conditions. Another teacher testified saying he wants people to remember Jason's smile. Readers never got a chance to hear what a great voice he had, but he had a flair for shining in the moment. Look at his picture and you will know he was destined for greatness one way or another. The prosecution reiterated how Jason was killed and emphasized how Jason died a slow painful and torturous agonizing death although the prosecution theorized that Jason didn't live at home with his mother because he was gay Jason's mother testified in court saying my son was never homeless I did not put him out because of his sexuality and Jason represented my drive my passion for living a Baltimore City jury deliberated less than three hours before finding Dante guilty of first degree murder and this time this time when Dante got sentenced the judge didn't hold back he said you are not a ghoul or a thing that goes bump in the night but you are every bit as frightening because you are real you are a danger to your friends you are a danger to your enemies and you are a danger to society before he said all of this and basically reamed him a new one before sentencing before sentencing Dante to two consecutive life sentences, one without the possibility for parole and a three-year concurrent term for using the box cutter as a deadly weapon. Shikes. Now, let's be honest. This crime was notorious in the state of Maryland because he was killed by... He was, I, I believe, honestly, in my opinion, this is just my opinion now. He dude just came home from jail. He wasn't used to, you know, a kid being that flamboyantly gay. And he killed him because he was a freaking monster. He was a rapist. 
he probably was having sex with men in jail, you know, and, you know, it, to me, and plus his lifestyle, uh, ugh. I mean, and then he, a painful death, to be cut and slashed with a box cutter. This fucked my head up when I heard about this case. It really did because he got out because of the Innocence Project. So you, you beat your first case and then you get another murder less than a year later? Really? Really? Like I said, some people are determined to be fuck-ups. No matter what, no matter how many chances you get. So what you gonna say now, like when you're locked up now, nobody gave you a chance? I mean, um, he, to me, he obviously wanted to, to go back to prison. How you gonna be released after serving 10 years and then go back? I never understood that. I was just like, you know, I remember when this case happened, I really felt sorry for, you know, uh, Jason's family. I felt sorry for him. You know, he probably felt like he was alone to have to live in this house that basically sounded like a house of horrors. You know, it just sound, and then, oh my God, the aunt being there and not hearing anything. I just, it just, this case really, really just fucked with me. I'm not even going to lie. I'm not going to lie. And this is why, you know, this will always be one of the notorious sick pedophile cases that occurred in the state of Maryland. Moving right along into this episode's Unsolved Homicide. But before I do, let me just mention that like in each season before this one, there will always, always be an unsolved homicide that needs special attention that will be discussed and it will be profiled. You know, we're not just going to sit here and talk about notorious crimes and criminals and stuff like that because there needs to be a focus on homicide victims who do not get their fair share of attention. Believe it or not, not every person that gets killed in Baltimore or in the state of Maryland, like actually, like their case doesn't always make the news. Their murder doesn't always make the Baltimore Sun. It don't always make Murder, Inc. or Fox 45, WBAL, nothing like that. Sometimes these cases don't make the news at all. You don't hear nothing about them. And there's no media coverage at all or nothing mentioned about it at all. You know, it's like more like a person get killed, they was here one minute, and then they was gone the next. And the victim's family is, is they just expected to pick up the pieces of their lives and just basically just pick up where they left off, just move on with their life like nothing ever happened, and basically just hope for the best. Full of trauma. That, that You have PTSD for somebody getting killed. And to make matters worse, in some of these cases, the friends or family of the victims, they actually know who killed their loved one. But they don't know how, they don't know what to do. Or they don't have, like, the evidence or the information that the detectives need to build a solid case that gets a person convicted. And, like, they feel stuck because they still don't know what happened. You can't, you know, and they don't know what happened and why. So, well, guess what? On this podcast... I know what that feels like, and we give attention, I give attention to not only high-profile notable homicides in Merlin, but a focus is also on unsolved homicides that may or may not have received, like, the same attention that 
the, you know, that they deserved or unsolved homicides where it seemed like nothing was done because the victim lived a certain lifestyle or they sold drugs or whatever, or they, they was tricking or whatever. They did this in their personal life. Who cares? The last I checked, none of y'all are named God. So y'all don't have the right to decide who lives and who dies, no matter what the reason. The family and the victim still deserves answers and they still deserve justice. So with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 26-year-old Rashida Muhammad. On September the 18th, 2002, around 7 a.m., 26-year-old Rashida Muhammad was found in the back of 500 in the back of the 500 block of North Gay Street near Old Town Mall in a vacant lot and she was shot several times. She was rushed to a local hospital where she later died. And that's literally, literally all the police have. And people that don't live in Baltimore, yeah, you could wake up one morning and just see a body on your way to school or a body on your way to work and that's all they got. That's Baltimore City. Um, That's literally all the police got. And that's basically all I could even find on this case. There is a $4,000 reward, but this is still an unsolved homicide that is 10 years old now and deserves justice and deserves answers. So y'all already know the next part and how I'm going to kick it. If you know of or have any information or clues that can lead to an arrest or conviction, in this unsolved homicide, please call Homicide Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call them at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also send them a text message at 443-902-4824. You can email them at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. Once again, those numbers are 410-396-2100. That's Baltimore City Cold Case Squad. I used to have their numbers on speed dial. You can also call them at um, 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also send them a text message at 443-902-4824. You can email them at homicide tips. And that's tips with an S at BaltimorePolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, eye-popping, bizarre episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the unedited truth of how and why I do what I do, why I started a true crime podcast, and where I'm going with this podcast. A lot of people think I just woke up one day and then, boom, a podcast. But that is hardly true. There is a full-blown method to all this madness, and this was definitely no spur-of-the-moment gimmick. You know, there were, um, I've also written true crime books, and you know, written true crime articles and 
Also be sure to pay a visit to the new website, www.MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com and Maryland is spelled MDS, MostNotoriousMurders.com to get immediate access to all of the episodes that have been released to date. Uh, check out the website also for links to all of the books that have been released to date. Um, check out um, all, the, all of the books that are related to this podcast, which are entitled uh, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008. There's uh, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1. And my local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, which is a book that every woman should be reading, and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. Be sure to tune in next week where another high-profile, another bizarre homicide occurring in Maryland will be examined, it will be profiled, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a Savage Life production.